Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 87. Have you ever wondered what it would be like if your biggest customer dropped you as a client? Well, that's exactly what we're talking about on the show today because Larry Anderson is on and he describes the first journey that he had as an entrepreneur building and selling his service and repair business to his general manager so he could focus on growing and scaling the contract manufacturing company from zero to 10 million in revenue and 55 employees with a ridiculously large concentration into one customer who then had a little bit of a change of pace with their industry and their strategy. So Larry had some very big decisions he had to make to pivot and then continue the business for another eight years so that way he could eventually sell it for what it was worth. Larry really dives into the life lessons he learned throughout the experiences in the different companies and what he would have done differently and what he's doing differently now in his new company. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my episode with Larry. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Morning, Larry. How you doing? Good morning, Ryan. Thanks for taking the time. I'm excited. Well. To have, I'm excited to have you in the show because I uh, our. Uh, really good friend, mutual friend of ours, had a lot of great things to say about you and how you've been helping him out in his his life. And, you know, after getting a wind of your story, I think it was something that I, I just couldn't wait to to hear a little bit more about, you know, but for the listeners that aren't familiar with it, can you bring us back to like the, the day that you decided you wanted to become an entrepreneur and how did you, de- how did you decide to jump in with both feet? Well, actually, I don't know that I made a conscious, uh, intelligent decision to become an entrepreneur. I think it was more of an accident, actually. Uh, I was uh, living in Southern California. I kind of dropped out of college and moved to Southern California, and I was selling cars. And um, my brother had a, a little hobby, electronic industrial electronic repair business. I had one part-time employee working out of my dad's basement, and he somehow convinced me uh, for 200 bucks a week to move back from San Diego to Minnesota and try to grow this business through sales. So it was really a, a part-time, very, very part-time sales job. And so I, I said yes for some reason, and uh, I think he's the better sales guy there. Um, <laughs> and so I moved back uh, from San Diego and I started uh, selling industrial electronic repair, which I knew absolutely nothing about. But after talking with him a little bit and understanding the need and the market and the industry, I kind of figured out uh, the channel. So this is the early 90s. And so I kind of figured out who was selling this equipment, who had the need. And then I just started calling. They were they were distributors. So I just started calling them and, and growing the business. And um, so at the time, the, I, you were calling the people that were selling the equipment and you were repairing it? or were you? How, how yes. So they were dealers of the new equipment. But okay. uh, at the time, this equipment wasn't really super reliable. And so they're having failures out in the field. And this is this is equipment for like manufacturing for anything from um, extruders, plastic extruders to uh, HVAC equipment, all kinds of process equipment. And when this equipment would go down, it would stop a production line or it would, you know, make a building get warm or something like that. And so it was critical that this stuff got repaired quickly. So very high margin uh, and very high demand. And uh, so we he had one part-time repair person uh, working in my father's basement, like I mentioned. And so I just started calling the dealers of this equipment because their customers would call them complaining that their equipment was down. And at the time, most of the manufacturers did not have service techs or repair techs. Some of it was either European-made equipment or Japanese-made equipment. And so they did they were shipping the product here, but they didn't have support staff in the U.S. for it. Um, so anyway, we started uh, uh, calling on the dealers of this around the country and started getting in repair business and field service work. And uh, over the course of three years, we, we grew it from, uh, yeah, mostly myself, grew it from um, one part-time person to a staff of 10. Yeah, so we're we're growing fairly quickly, and and uh, actually opened up a 
another office in Wisconsin to cover some uh, some of the business in Wisconsin. And so that was good. And, and then simultaneously, uh, about six months into that project, got a call from a, an old client of my father's who uh, needed some spare parts for equipment. And so we started uh, doing some contract manufacturing for them. It's in the computer industry. So kind of grow in the re- industrial repair business and then found an opportunity for contract manufacturing. So to answer your initial question, I never really planned on being an entrepreneur. My father had been, and I did, I was more interested in sales and business development. So I never really wanted to own my own business. I didn't know a lot about accounting or manufacturing or HR or, you know, really any, anything. <laughs> All the fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really have any of the skill sets to really run a business. And I don't, I don't know that I really have the interest, but so I, I would say I'm really an accidental entrepreneur in that standpoint. It's interesting because a lot of people, I've heard that that statement more than once. <laughs> and yeah. it, it starts with out hustling and you're out hustling and you find a need and then you fill it. And then all of a sudden there's this operation. You got 10 people right. working for you. So how did you guys, you know, you know, maybe kind of extrapolate those two couple different service arms because you were, do, how long did that service repair continue? And did you continue to divest or focus more of your time on the contract manufacturing and how were they similar? Yeah. So similar in that they're both electronics they're both in the electronic industry but one was really a service and repair company that's uh, the brand at the time was called profix was the name of the company and so that was basically uh serving a customer who had a, a need that their equipment was down so that's that's what that was all about the contract manufacturing was building new equipment in the electronics industry uh, but that was that was building circuit boards and cable harness assemblies and things like that and so Really what happened, Ryan, is uh, the repair business is growing and the contract manufacturing business is going. And I was kind of the main business development guy for both of those. And so just kind of realized that I, I didn't have the bandwidth to manage them both. And so I actually sold the repair business to my general manager uh, that was he was doing a lot of the day to day stuff in the business anyway. And so I sold the uh, repair business to him so I could focus more on the contract manufacturing. So, you know, a couple questions on that. I find it interesting that a lot of the distributors didn't have service because that was our old our, our old world. I mean, it was your distributor, but then the services where a lot of the money was. So, how you know, did kind of curious. And one is, how did you end up selling it to him? Did, did you value the business at something or is it more just you take over the, the work? Or how did you guys end up structuring that? Yeah, so lesson number one, right? So... I didn't know anything about, first of all, I didn't know anything about building a business or growing a business or doing that. It just happened. And then so selling the business, the only thing I knew with, with talking to friends of mine that had businesses or, you know, advice of my peers was, you know, typically a service business gets about one times revenue. And I, so I thought, okay, that sounds good. And uh, so that was number one. And then number two, the general manager was somebody I'd known for quite a long time. And so, and I was doing quite well financially. And so I, I ended up financing a uh, majority of the, the uh, sale to him on a note. And so I took on the financing of that. So uh, what was so the big some, lesson out of both of those there, two? So there's some pain points. The, the first lesson is get some, you know, really get some outside advice, bring in somebody that has experience valuing a business, somebody that's not certainly not attached to the business, but understands the space and can can bring forth a, a you know a true and proper valuation of a business because certainly left money on the table. The business was growing. It was the margins were very good. And the second thing, which is extremely unfortunate, uh, so I, I sold it to my general manager and unfortunately, uh, less than two years later, he died unexpectedly. So the problem was I did not have, again, going back to the inexperience, I didn't have good structure in place of a, a you know, buy-sell agreement and things like that. And what I found out, un- unfortunately, you know, after reviewing it, is that he had really made a mess of the business in the last two years. And so it was the business, the business carried on for a couple more years, but it really, really was damaged to a point really beyond repair. So the big, huge financial lesson in that is, you know, get get people involved, regardless of how much you trust somebody and what kind of relationship and regardless of how the business is cash flowing, you know, take spend the time, spend the money, spend the effort, bring in 
professional uh, consultants and, and people to do that kind of stuff. So, so did you end up? Did you end up not getting paid the full yeah. amount? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I lost a, a substantial amount of money. So that's my uh, that's my lesson number one there, or you know, within that process. So not not getting a proper valuation, not not doing a real good business plan. Uh, well, I mean, you're young too, and I mean, I, I, I can. It's probably a very common mistake, and I, you know, I'm, I'm curious, Larry, on the, the the intricacies of that business. Did some of the dealers start getting into the service at some point, and then how did you know? Because I think about the unique situation that you guys had. So, like, other than just the one times revenue, how you could have potentially valued that because of the unique niche you had, unless there was maybe more risk because the dealers could have quickly gotten into it and forced you out. Uh, so yeah, so the electronics industry was was moving fairly quickly. There, the dealers themselves were not getting into the repair business. The two things were happening: the manufacturers were getting much better; their quality was improving, and they also were starting to establish their own uh, service and repair facilities in the U.S. Again, most of them were either European or Japanese manufacturers of these controls, and so. You know, five years into this business, we started seeing them opening up their own service repair because the the customers were demanding it because they just couldn't have this equipment, critical equipment going down. And so the quality improved and the, the manufacturers started to bring in service centers. And at one point, we were author, uh, uh, an authorized service center for about 20 different manufacturers. And so we're, we're doing warranty processing and uh, hot swap exchanges and things like that. So... Uh, so a couple of things were going on there. What were some of the things that geared you to more towards the contract manufacturing? I mean, was it just passion? Was it you know financial upside, different challenge, or you know why did you pick that one over the service and repair? So the the contract manufacturing business was in the disk drive space, and so again, a little older than, quite a bit older than you. Um, what was going on in the early '90s was the internet was coming on, and storage was just exploding, and so. Most of, most of my career, I've been an opportunity seeker more than a planner of businesses. And I learned something from my electronics service repair uh, business, but also started to see what was going on. And, and our growth in the contract manufacturing business uh, was phenomenal. The, the equipment, the, the cost of the equipment we're building was, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars per machine. So the, the revenue was much higher. Margins were pretty decent because uh, this customer, uh, they're the largest dr- uh, disk drive manufacturer in the world. And they were more about how fast we could build equipment uh, versus, you know, cost cutting and things like that. Again, from from 92 to 2000 timeframe. And so it was really about speed to market versus, uh, you know, cost control and supply chain management and all that kind of stuff. So we we're, we're kind of running wide open, full throttle with that customer we didn't abuse the relationship of course but um well it makes it a little uh, bit easier when so i mean it's just a little bit more of a partnership than it is some some buyer pushing you down because yeah. they, they want to hit their bonus <laughs> yeah it was it was nothing like that at all it's like how fast can you build the stuff what do we need to do and so we had you know when we had started that again we started with a, a couple of people and we didn't have the clear picture nobody nobody did nobody knew what was going to happen and that with the internet and with with data storage and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the year over year growth was phenomenal. And well, let's, let's, and so, let's dive in. I want to dive into that. So you, you could refer to this one customer. So was there one triggering event that led you? I mean, cause it's such, it's such a different business than the service and repair company that you had. You know, did someone approach you or did you see the opportunity and connect some of the dots? But like, what, you know, what were some of the main like pieces that originated the business? Yeah. So good question. So when I was running the repair business, uh, uh, there's just one of these things where I got a call one day from a, an employee of this disk drive company, and he had actually worked with my father at the old company. This this large disk drive company acquired uh, a Minnesota-based manufacturing facility, and so they they were going to get some spare parts uh, for some of the machines my father had. Um, my father, the entrepreneur, had built maybe five to eight years ago, and so. Uh, I just happened to take a phone call and he was asking if we could supply some spare parts or at least give him some drawings of some circuit boards and things like that so they could, um, you know, service some of the machines they had. And he had just mentioned that they're possibly thinking about building a few more machines because their capacity was demands were increasing. And so, again, it's more my curiosity than anything. And so I just 
chatted with him a little bit and I decided to meet him and go down to their facility and talk a little bit. And I think we supplied, I think the first order was a few thousand dollars of spare parts or something like that. And uh, because we'd had the the old information, we were able to build these things. And so, so we built these parts for them thinking, well, you know, that's good margin, nice little job and, and see where it goes. But it sounded like there's maybe some more opportunity there. And so we just, just kept talking and, and that's kind of how I got into that contract manufacturing side. And so it just started really developing fairly quickly. So was it, were you, you were actually building the parts versus servicing them. So that, was there specs that they were giving you that they said, Hey, you know, here's what we need. And, and then you just go off and build it because of the, the, the historical knowledge. So as I mentioned, uh, years earlier, my father had built some machines for the predecessor of this company in Minnesota. Got it, got it, got and it, got so, it. Yeah, so he had built about 40 machines for them. And so when this California company acquired the Minnesota company, they found his documentation. Got there, it, say, got and, it. But he, that business, unfortunately, was no his old business was no longer a business. Uh, but they somehow gotten a hold of me and, you know, looking to see if we could supply some spare parts. And so that was really the the genesis of that business. So what are some of the milestones as you were kind of clipping along and you said a, had a pretty crazy growth rate, where did, where did you make the decision to go full fledged into that versus and, and sell the re- service and repair? Were you pretty up and running or did, was it just a quick switch to the opportunity or whereabouts was the, the uh, we're, so there's about a, a one, about a two year overlap in those businesses. And so I was managing the service and repair business and brought on a manager and, and doing the sales side of that. And at the same time, I was doing the business development sales side of the contract manufacturing. So wearing basically two hats, so carrying two business cards at the time. And so roughly about two years into that, Ryan, it was, uh, I think we maybe were crossed over to a million dollars in the contract manufacturing business, which was, it it surpassed the repair business in less than two years. But really the the main thing that, that interests me is, my business partners were interested in taking on all of the operations side of it, which is what's really the drag for me in the repair businesses. I just really didn't care for the operational side of it, but you know, I just ended up doing it. And so they were willing to do that, allow me to do purely do the biz dev sales side on the contract manufacturing, and they would take care of all the, you know, all the other stuff. All the other stuff, right? The, the fun, yeah. the fun stuff. So how did, how did you guys, who, you know, with your partners, how did you guys structure your agreement? I mean, was it was it just a split three ways and like off to the races, or was there anything creative that you guys did for the the partnership agreement? Yeah, good. You know, great question because of of sales, right? And so I'm in business development, and, and the unique thing is that I had this other business going on, and so really the way we started it was just on a percentage of revenue. You know, a real simple thing. None of us none of us thought it would would grow to the scale that it did. And so for the first three or four years of that business, it was just a straight uh, gross revenue commission like an independent rep. And uh, the business was doing very well. And so uh, I actually moved to Florida. You know, the the client was in Minnesota, but I moved to Florida and I was just commute each week. I just kind of lived a pretty good life and took care of the customer. But they were managing the rest of the business and uh, managing. We had, I think, about 55 employees or something at the peak of it. Holy cow. So from you at the year two, when you decided to sell their service repair business and you decided to shift this direction and you keep referring to the customer. So versus, you know, with business development, the customer, what was what was the biz dev like? I mean, was did you was it just one customer that you were servicing for them or were you diversifying out with a bigger customer? Maybe? So how did that Yeah. So, you know, lesson number whatever uh, on my life lessons. So the, you know, the data storage industry was really exploding. Uh, There was probably five or six primary players in data storage or disk drive uh, data storage. And so this client of ours was consuming all of our capacity. Uh, We're growing kind of about as fast as we could. And it was highly proprietary as far as the equipment we were building and the, the technologies that each one of these companies were uh, providing to the market because there's intense uh, competitive pressure. So we did not, uh, except for maybe a couple of occasions, we met with a few of their competitors uh, and talked to them about building 
similar equipment to them, but we're so busy with the prime customer that we couldn't even really foresee taking on even further capacity. And then the conflict of interest, we didn't know how to really circumvent that because of the knowledge we had with this process. And, And our client was the number one leading manufacturer at the time of these of these devices and um and they've since uh they they're still the largest and so they've acquired several of those competitors over the years but um yeah so how did you so so they cut so they were not would they not allow you to do it or did you have like a contract or something like that you know we didn't it was just crazy it was things were moving so fast we didn't have contracts we didn't have supply agreements we didn't have consigned inventory agreements uh we didn't have you know it was just full throttle crazy and it just doesn't sound you know when i say it when i talk about it today you know most people would just say you've got to be kidding me you know what yeah what are you stupid or what you know and it's just but it was good margin was good um well, you got sales, man. Like that's crazy. Yeah, you got just you know major revenue growth and really high margin, and and uh, you know employees were happy. Life was good, and I was doing some other real estate investment and other things outside of that, and so so that's kind of what we did, and we ran that for almost ten years. So you you said fifty five employees at the top. So what were some of the the revenue marks that you were hitting? So we started from zero and uh, the first couple of years were, you know, like I said, out of the gate, I think the first year or year and a half into it, we we're at a million bucks. And so we were a million, a million and a half the second year, two million the third year. And, and we started growing in almost a million bucks a year. And I think we hit 10 million at our peak in revenue. And it was, was most of that revenue with that one client? 99% of it. Holy cow. Did that ever stress you out? I mean... Yeah, I didn't lose a lot of sleep about it because, like I said, I was doing some other things with real estate. Uh, My business partners also had some other side business stuff they were working on. And so we were kind of kind of in a heart. It's really weird. We're kind of in a harvest mode for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we did acquire a, a large building. We did have quite a bit of equipment and inventory for this specific customer again. You know, all stuff that we purchased on our own dime uh, inventory that we needed to have to really buffer the the demand schedules. So, you know, after 10 years, you didn't you didn't think you thought maybe it would slow down a little bit, but you didn't think it would really slow down. So what was the communication with like this client? Because if it was full throttle, because I'm just thinking later from my background where, you know, we'd have big clients and everybody is really familiar, like the Walmarts and the targets of the world where they just kind of swing it around, swing their power around and just the terms and conditions. And you're just, you know, you're lucky to be with them in that kind of relationship. I mean, did you have one contact? Was there multiple people? And what was the actual relationship like? Yeah, so uh, I was a prime point person with this with this customer. A typical week for me would look like uh, flying in from Florida on a Sunday night or a Monday. I would meet with a client uh, two or three days a week. Uh, so I would meet with different. I would meet with purchasing. I would meet with manufacturing. I would meet with engineering. So I had roughly about fifteen or twenty different individuals uh, at the organization. We would talk about our forecasts. We talk about deliveries. You know, we had maybe a couple months visibility on their schedules. It was that it was that crazy how it was moving. And so we would talk about that. Then I would meet with my team back at uh, our facility, you know, relay that information, get the updates on, you know, what the what the schedule looks like and all that kind of stuff. But we, we played so many scenarios about, you know, if we got you an order here, can you cut to a week off of here? And if we got you, you know, some, some of this consigned, you know, some of the uh, big, big, heavy equipment, electron uh, data acquisition stuff that would go into these machines was supplied by Hewlett Packard and a few others. So they would supply that to us. So there's a lot of that scheduling conversations and stuff going on, but it really was driven by how fast could we build physically build these, this equipment for them at the last moment's notice kind of a thing right so uh, that's that's kind of how it went for almost 10 years so and and you had a you know intimate relationship with these people so i mean you, did you not feel because I mean, you probably didn't feel too much stress that it wasn't gonna stop i mean so two months might seem like 
a short in your mind was that a short amount of time and you wish you would have known further in advance what the forecast was looking like and how things were revolving or was that enough time because of how fast you guys were going you know it's it's never enough time and it's never a clear enough forecast and there's just a lot of things but uh, kind of what happened is over the course of those 10 years is every every year we were building year over year over year so we were kind of internally building to our own you know our own historical forecast right so we said okay we built x amount of machines last year we think it's going to stay the same or grow you know 10 or 20 percent and so we're we're managing it internally because we really couldn't deliver off of a two-month you know visibility <laughs> there's just we, we had to take our own internal risks on that because you just couldn't you know physically get all the components and all the stuff we needed because everybody else in the industry was crazy on fire as well right so you're pushing the same suppliers that everybody else was pushing mm, and so interesting so yeah so we had to make some of our own risks and and uh you know do some of our own scheduling and you know uh second shifts and overtimes and just all, all kinds of stuff that we had to do to to stay on track because that was that was the most important thing to our customer above all was hitting our delivery dates. And so that stress, Ryan, was more born on uh, my business partners and the manufacturing team. I was the biz dev guy that would just, you know, tell the customer we'll make it happen. And generally we did, you know, very, very rarely did we miss a forecast or delivery date. So where did things change? I mean, what happened? You know, you said you were 10 million and 55 employees on the top. I mean, what what were some triggering events that shifted the the dynamics? So a uh, huge life life lesson again. So we did not have long term contracts. We did not have any inventory guarantees from this client. And what caught us off guard because we were not, even though we're building machines for the disk drive space, we didn't really understand deep what what the other players were doing and what our own customers doing in their R&D departments. And so what happened was there was a major breakthrough in technology in disk drives that the equipment that we were building, now they needed fewer machines than, than the more machines. So they actually had an overcapacity of the equipment that we built because there was a major breakthrough in technology. What was the technology that ended up, what was the specific thing that changed? So the machines that we built, uh, were for the internal components of a disk drive and they're for the recording head the head that would actually transmit and, and uh, put data onto the disk drive itself and the the way that that head interacted with the platter they were able to change it and so they needed much fewer recording heads in a disk drive and so at the time we were selling equipment uh, some of these uh, disk drives had five or ten or fifteen recording heads and consequently five or 10 or 15 platters, storage platters internally, they had a breakthrough on the recording head and the, rec and the way they transmitted data. So they went from needing 10 or 15 recording heads to needing like one. Yeah. So all the machines that we built were relative to the amount of those recording heads that went inside the disk drive. And so now they came up with a new technology a different head technology and a different platter technology where you know now we have a terabyte hard drive with you know maybe has a couple platters in it one platter in it whereas before that would have to have maybe 50 platters and 50 recording heads in it so just a huge technology breakthrough that caught us off guard uh, because our customer again a highly competitive industry and our customer just didn't give us a ton of heads heads up uh, <laughs> heads up they're recording heads um, <laughs> so they did not give us a ton of uh, you know insight or anything onto that because they still needed the supply of the equipment up until the point where they didn't need it right so uh, so how did that I mean what was the conversation and like I mean you flying up from Florida and then all of a sudden you're sitting down for coffee I mean like how did like what ended up how did that whole thing unfold? So they had asked us to to do a couple of uh, prototype machines for them that were different than what we were currently doing. And they were really tight lipped about it, but it was kind of modifying the machines that we had built with some different electronics and things like that. So we had done a few machines like that. And for our understanding, it was about for them to increase the you know, get more capacity out of the machines that they had 
we didn't know that they were converting them to build these new types of recording heads that would actually dramatically decrease the demand. So we were getting some of the folks that we work with were getting giving us some feedback, but most of the people we're working with were in manufacturing and uh, they were in purchasing. And so either they didn't have knowledge or they were running that good of an operation where they just didn't, you know, they didn't really think of us in the, in that true sense of a partner, even though we had supplied, I think to that point, Ryan, I think like 700 machines to them or something like that. So they're, you know, this part of their manufacturing, we were the guys for them, for this, for this machine, which was pivotal to what they were doing. And so I don't know. It's just, it just kind of completely caught off, caught us off guard. Like I said. So, I mean, they, they've got 700 machines and how many were you kicking out a year then? So like at that, what time of the year was this? And did you guys have, were you, were you literally left sitting with inventory or how did that, how did it all actually take place? Yeah. So it, it was, uh, one of the most abrupt things that I had witnessed in my young career, you know, of a, of a change like that. So that the, you know, I can understand ups and downs because over 10 years we had, we'd had, some years that are a little slower, some years were busier than others. Um, but generally the trend was uptaking. So in this particular case, it just, it really dried up. So we started to get, um, our first purchase order started to get pushed out. Whereas before it was always about how fast you can do this. And so some of the later purchase orders were starting to get pushed out and we weren't getting real good clarity on them. And, you know, they're talking about their, their, you know, their demand schedules were, you know, changing or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, so we had, we had had quite a bit of inventory on hand and it's all unique inventory for this particular client. And, you know, we just ended up holding the bag. Yeah. That's just really the nuts and bolts of it. There's no, no way to sugarcoat it. Yeah. It's like the musical chairs and you were left without the that's chair. It. <laughs> you got it. That's exactly it. And so, but what did you guys do? Like, what are you going talking to your partners and stuff like that? I mean, what, you know, I'm assuming as that's starting to happen, the demand schedules are changing and the POs are, you know, trickling in instead of flowing. I mean, are you getting stomach aches or you're making calls or like you, what, what, what's the internal dialogue that you guys are having and how to, how to handle that? Yeah. So, so some of it, you know, the client themselves, they didn't know how well the technology was going to work. they, you know, their assumption was that the industry was going to continue to grow at the same rate. So as far as that, that particular client, we, we worked with them, tried to get information from them. Most of it, they were just unclear of where, where the technology was going to go. And so we kind of started to have to make some decisions on our own. Like I said, they were our top client. And so one of my business partners retired. Uh, the other one decided to go into the medical uh, device industry and move out of the data storage industry. And so I, I moved back from Florida, kind of ended up here I am again, being the entrepreneur that I didn't want to be. So I took over the business, did, did a lot of downsizing, sold the facility we had, and then pivoted the business into kind of a different space, but still in automation and manufacturing. And so uh, it was a fairly significant pivot uh, as far as doing less contract manufacturing, more standard product for a broader audience. So that, I mean, that's huge. I mean, what... I- <laughs> I mean, you had some serious tenacity to keep that going. So, I mean, you went from like, was it completely zero revenue, like no POs? And then you're just sitting there with a building, 55 employees, payroll and equipment. And like, did you have to file for bankruptcy or anything like that? Or were you able no, to? No, we had, uh, fortunately, we had uh, had quite a bit of cash. We did burn a lot of cash in an interim instead of just shutting the business down because we didn't have real clear and it would have been nice from the client standpoint just to say hey we don't need you for two years but we we did kind of get strung out for a while and so we did burn through some cash uh but we had some assets and we had some cash and like i said uh after i don't know six eight months of that one of my partners retired and the other one moved on into the medical device industry and so i kind of took over and picked up the pieces and pivoted the company uh, into manufacturing of, of automation equipment and a lot more customers, a lot less contract manufacturing. So did you have to buy your partners out or was it just like, okay, good run guys, because they didn't want to do the, the effort of the pivot or what? Yeah. And so we'd, we'd always, you know, the last several years of the business, we we're running it in a harvest mode. And so we had some assets. And so we basically 
worked out an arrangement of what we needed to do and and uh it it really worked out kind of cool and so i ended up with the company itself uh we you know parsed off the assets as we as we needed to and and then uh i took the company and changed it and moved it and ran it for probably another eight years or so well that's that's a that is some serious serious uh endurance right there so and grit if you want to call it grit uh, yeah probably stubbornness uh, along <laughs> along with maybe a little naivety uh you know thinking i can just pivot it and do something no, so. it's awesome so i want to hear how, how did you how, you know what did you say to your employees i mean what kind of employees did you keep and then who did you start calling on and what you know when you say pick up the pieces what were the important pieces that you picked up and how did you reinvent the vision i mean for another eight years that's and that's substantial too yeah so so very very different business model but uh yeah a couple of the key players uh engineering uh, finance guy manufacturing person so kept kept a couple of key people uh, for a, a while anyway in the business and really what I did Ryan is you know kind of learned that hey I got to talk to a lot more customers and so I started out in the electronics industry as far as talking to customers and that and started getting some orders for much smaller orders but started get orders for these standard products that we had developed so did you um, did you have enough of that cash to you know pay these people and then give a little bit of a runway for you to start bringing in the orders in yeah yeah i had i had had some some cash and um you know i had some some other resources to pull from and so was able to go you know get it going and, and push it forward and uh like i said we had a facility that we sold and things like that so uh it, but it was, it was a tough it was a bumpy period you know it's a, a lot of, a lot a lot of hard work and uh you know we started selling products and and uh you know it's a good business it wasn't didn't reach the scale of the of the first they're under the same name, but they didn't reach the scale of the first business by any means, revenue-wise. What were some of the milestones uh, for, you know, how many, was it, you know, how diverse was your customer set and revenue and employees and such But by the time you hit your top peak? Yeah, so in the, in the next iteration of the business, the uh, we had, instead of one customer, I think uh, we maybe had, in one year, maybe 70 different customers. and But these were... So they were buying a standard product and it was much much lower price point and it was um they needed it for automation projects so they're building machines different types of machines but they're building they're buying the framework of the machine from us and so uh, kind of like if you build a house you'd bring in a framer and they'd frame the house so we were building machine frames or machine bases um so just a much much lower uh price point but um still a nice little product and so like I said, I, I worked at that, but it was a niche business. Uh, you know, we're national. We were selling to a bunch of different machine builders, and we we're maybe building each year 100 to 150 of these machine uh, enclosures or machine bases. And so, worked at that. Worked really, really hard at that for eight years, and just didn't see the the growth in that industry for myself. Not being really connected through that industry, but. Made a lot of connections, had a lot of good customers, did a lot of projects, you know, built, I don't know, like 3,000 of these things over that period of time. And uh, ultimately, uh, you know, made the decision that I need to, you know, get back into sales somewhere and and uh, do something different. So we're, you know, a couple of questions, Larry, is how did you, did you have supplier connections? I mean, to, to switch to that kind of product and, you know, how did you look at that eight year, you know, journey? What kind of vision did you have for the business? Was it, you know, here's, I, you know, I just want to keep this going or was it, you know, did, I'm going to use these relationships that, that I've built with these suppliers to, and to, to sell more stuff. I mean, how did, how did you come up with that pivot and that vision? Well, uh, you know, I learned the lesson about the one customer thing. Uh, I learned the lesson about not, you know, about going to competitors and not worrying about it. I learned quite a bit about, you know, manufacturing and other parts, pieces of the business. And so, what I did was I, I kind of had a, a goal number in mind on, on revenue that I was going to build this business to a revenue goal. Unfortunately, I never got to that goal, but got close, but I didn't get there. And so after eight years of, uh, of pushing towards that goal and just not not seeing me getting there, I kind of threw, I don't want to say throw in the towel because uh, the company, I think last year uh, surpassed that goal, the, the company that acquired it surpassed it. So it was attainable. Uh, I just needed different resources to get there. 
So were you were you burnt out? Were you what was the triggering event? Where were you? It was, and how did it come come about? Really, where where I was is uh, I was kind of an outsider looking in the industry. I didn't have the connections into some of the some of the stuff that went in these machines, and so I I really wasn't part of the club. Even though I was selling equipment, I wasn't really totally in the industry because I hadn't grown up in that industry or been in that industry. And so I, I kind of reached a point uh, one day, you know, I didn't have a partner in the business. And so I think, you know, looking back on my earlier business success, having having partners in the business is really, really critical, uh, particularly for somebody that's more of a sales biz dev person like myself. You know, we don't always think of the things that you need to do to grow, grow businesses. And we don't always make the right financial decisions because we're usually um, opportunistic. You know, yeah, we're opportunistic, but we're also overly optimistic on a lot of things. And so we go out and make commitments and do trade shows and, and do marketing things and, you know, hire salespeople and do a lot of things that, you know, we think the business is going to come and we don't really think it, think it through well enough. So, uh, so, you know, burnt out yet, yeah, you know, I, there's certainly an element of that, Ryan, it was, uh, you know, year over year of not hitting the mark. And so I don't know that there was a, particular uh pivot or uh you know any particular event i just as just said hey you know i've been doing this long enough i'm not making the mark i'm going to put the thing up for sale and see what happens so based on the couple different experiences you had from these other companies how did you approach that process i mean was there i mean you said you had the big life lesson of the valuation all these different things and you know you've gone you realize what the one customer had you had done to you so how did you go about this entire process of finding the buyers and the people helping you yeah so uh, this time i actually used uh you know we're a small revenue company and so uh, it wasn't a big you know big sexy play for some you know big m a firm so i reached out to three different business brokers uh talked to them had that come in they did their you know now i know you know looking back they did their quickie little business evaluation you know each one of them has a different formula of how they arrive at, you know, valuation. And so really I, I chose the, the broker that I had the best feeling and the best relationship with initially. And I, that's who I went with They're They're a little more optimistic on their, you know, the cell uh, number and just, the, I just more clicked with their process and uh, the personality the individual has worked with. Did you have like an idea, a couple, you know, do you have an idea of who would potentially buy your business? I mean, did that, I, what, yeah, you- I did. Yeah. I, I kind of had a feeling that there's, you know, there's certain types of buyers that would be interested in this and they would, they would buy this company because they could, uh, it's kind of complicated to, ex- to explain, but they, they would, they have supplemental products that can go on this be kind of like buying a car without an engine and a transmission. And they would be the people that would make the engine and the transmission. And so this would help them sell more engines and transmissions. So in my case, it's robots and vision systems and components for the uh, automation industry. And so I had uh, the company I, I had was building the frame for, for putting a lot of expensive automation on there. And so that's who I thought would be a good player or an individual that wanted a, you know, a nice little manufacturing business that he could, you know, manage and grow, uh, you know, grow five, 10% year over year. And so that's, those are kind of the two types of buyers I thought would be interested in the business. Would it have mattered to you either one? Kind of, you know, I, I put a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of effort into it. And so I, the, the important thing to me was that it wouldn't fail. Like the, like the first business that I sold that, that really bothered me that, you know, un- unfortunately, you know, through an unexpected thing like a death, but also, you know, preceding the death was bad management and, you know, really destroying a brand that was really a good brand, had really good relationships with customers. And so for me, I, I put a tremendous amount of time and, and effort into this this business. And so it was really important to me that the the new buyer would would value that and would understand that and would, you know, grow the brand within the industry. So. That was, I think you kind of answered because you said grow the brand within the industry. Was there certain things that, you know, you held in priority of making sure that, well, you know, was it the customers? Was it the actual product? Was it the employees? I mean, you know, what did, what did not failing mean to you? 
not failing to me was was keep the business alive and keep it growing you know for me that you know when when the unfortunate closing of the my my first business to me that was really a blow is to say they, you know that business should still be around today that should be a premier brand in that space regardless of whether i'm getting any financial remuneration for it or not to me it was important because you're building something you know you've, you've put a lot of time and sweat and energy into it and so for the employees, yes, that's important, um, it, you know, and they certainly can find other places of employment, but it's it's your creation, right? And so you take a lot of pride and joy in that when you're when you're doing that. And so that was that was really pivotal to me as to find the right buyer for it that would do something with it. How how many buyers did you vet through, and how did you um, how were they coming to the table, and did you have multiple people, multiple people at the table? Yeah. So yes to all of that. Uh, the we had buy as far as buyers. Uh, you know, I think I had at least twenty five. Holy uh, cow! Dif- different uh, individuals and companies. Uh, it was kind of a split because it was a smaller. You know, it was a manageable, and I was willing again to this time I would finance just part of the business. Uh, but I was I was you know willing to do that. Uh, I was willing to stay on in some capacity. And so I think I had, yeah, probably about 25 um, different parties that, you know, went through the NDA process and got, you know, got in, you know, to second or third round on the thing. And were they all the different types of buyers? I mean, was there certain people, was there certain correlations that you saw that financial buyers were willing to pay more or less versus strategic buyers? And like, how did those couple of things impact your vision of it not failing? Yeah, so one one big block of it was just individual uh, people that are either looking to get out of their W two job and own a business, and they wanted to be in manufacturing, and it was you know the the finances made sense they could they could tackle it. So that was one group of them. Most of them did not have any clue of of the space uh, or what it was. Uh, and then the second group was really manufacturing companies that wanted to get into the the nationwide client base that I had, even though we didn't have a ton of revenue, we had pretty good A-list customers and it, it was a manufacturing business. So it would, it would add on to their machining and welding and their, their other manufacturing businesses. So it would get them into a different market and different customer base uh, for a fairly low dollar amount. Yeah, uh, did that affect the price though? I mean, cause you know, the multiple of EBITDA and cash flow for financial buyer who's going to go take an, out an SBA loan or something like that is different from someone that could get slingshotted into 70 national accounts where a multiple of EBITDA might not be the right way to value it. I mean, is there, did you, was there differences in that approach with the, with you and the broker and everybody? You know, the, the broker was, even though they're, they're good guys and all that. They probably still weren't the right choice uh, because they broker all types of businesses. And, and ironically, at the last five or ten potential buyers, I, I was managing probably about ninety-five percent of the process at that point. So it, it was, you know, if I, if there was a niche uh, niche uh, broker that would cater more to manufacturing or technology or something, that would have been a better fit than kind of a a general purpose business broker that I use. But again, you know, I've, I've been through this process once in my life and I, I didn't, you know, you I didn't understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know. And, and again, you know, I'd run the business and I was trying to grow sales and trying to grow sales. And, and at the time that I decided to sell the business, of course, I, I didn't have all the, you know, all the finance stuff and all the inventory, everything was not really in a nice sweet package, but I I'd kind of said it's time to go and I'm, I'm willing to take the lick on this thing instead of really, you know, waiting another year or two and clean up the financials and, you know, clean up the customer list and, you know, do all the stuff that you really, really should do to maximize value. I had reached a point where I, I said, I'll just go out and sell, you know, the, the difference for me for X hundreds of thousands of dollars and, in, in, you know, or whatever of, of net to me, I'll just go earn that instead of hanging around and and doing what really should have been done. You know, the, again, here's a biz dev guy running these businesses, uh, but really not having you know, the foresight to bring somebody in a year, year and a half before I made the decision to sell to really clean some of that stuff up because that would have paid for itself. Not not just the stress and the you know, 25 buyers coming in the door and all of that, but just in real hard dollars, you know, on the transaction. 
Well, what are some specific things that, you know, you're, when you're saying cleaning it all up, what, that you would have done or you saw through the questioning due diligence that would have benefited it? So just just having the really clean accounting stuff, uh, you know, separating any personal stuff from the business for a longer period of time. Uh, some of the equipment purchases and some of the inventory that I had on hand, uh, you know, making sure that I've got the right valuation of the inventory, you know, maybe, you know, trying to get one or two contracts or commitments from one of my customers that I really didn't push for would have made a huge, huge difference from that standpoint. So, so really just, just tightening up the things that uh, any business owner should be doing anyways, you know, understanding his customers better, you know, are they ever going to buy again from you? You know, you know, where are they at in their purchasing cycles? And then also on the, you know, just really, really good, clean financials, making sure every, you know, every expenditure that was in there and some of the things I was doing on sales and marketing, you know, even if it's, Twenty, fifty, seventy-five thousand dollars of of spend that you're doing. If you're going to sell the company, really evaluate that. You know, a year or two in advance is that. You know, that might be something that'll pay back in two or three years from now. But spending that fifty thousand dollars on a you know a couple of trade shows or whatever might not. You know, that that's going to look a whole lot better on your bottom line now or, or in a year from now than it would three years from now when you don't own the company. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, I think it's a it's a constant balancing act that a lot of owners deal with where do you deal with the cash flow and do all that stuff now and wait for the multiple return <laughs> when you sell it or do you do it, just deal with it now or not deal with it now? And it's like that foot in the cash flow bucket and a foot in the future you know, return on investment cash out situation. Right. When you were going through that, Larry, did you said you were willing to stick around for a while? In what fashion, and was that related to some of the stuff that you hadn't cleaned up? Um, and how how was the deal structured from like cash earnout, promissory notes? I mean, um, you going through it a couple times already. How did you go into that? What did you want, and how did it actually end up coming out? Yeah, so the the ultimate purchaser was super strong financially. It was just a is a drop in the bucket for them. It's not a big deal at all. And so it was one of their first acquisitions uh, that they had done and they were going to start rolling through acquisitions. So um, I don't want to say it was a test for them, but it was kind of like that. But they, yeah, there's, I think 75, 80% of the purchase price was in cash. And then the rest of it was in a year out, uh, one year earn out based, you know, based on results of you know what the company did in that next year. And I was, I was kept around mainly uh, again on the biz dev because I had the relationships with the clients around the country. This this particular uh, the acquirer did not do business in a lot of the states that I did business in, and so I was there on board to do that. So I was compensated for that very fairly. That's interesting. For how did so how did you pick the buyer? And it was their first acquisition, and because did you find any weird nuances or lack of because it was their first time? I mean. Well, no, they're they're a fifty year old company. I actually I'd work with them. They're a local company. I'd work with them. They had a great, great. They have a great reputation in the industry. They sold the stuff that would go in the the equipment that I I manufactured. So just a highly respected organization. Very very solid financially. Very good reputation in the industry. And so it just you know the guys that came in just felt right. And uh, you know it just. They, they just seem like this is the kind of guys that are going to take this business and they're going to move it along. They're going to move this thing forward. They want to grow it because it helps internally helps them sell more product. And, and uh, you know, they can take it in. It's not a huge financial risk for them to make this acquisition. Uh, but still, they move, move through, you know, the, the due diligence and the, the attorney side of this was was fairly ridiculous for the size of the transaction. Uh, and the lawyer's fees were probably a whole lot more than they should have been. Uh, but it was done right, clean and tight. And, you know, the money was there and everything was good. How did how did you guys value the business? Was it a multiple of earnings or revenue? Yeah, or? so I, I trust, I trusted my broker on that. And it was, it was there, you know, they have these formulas of, you know, revenue and EBITDA and, and, you know, inventory and all that, you know, they come up with a number and, and I said, you know, unfortunately, some of the worst salespeople are salespeople, right? So I said, fine, instead of saying, you know, we should really go for, you know, 30 or 40% more or whatever. But 
So I trusted uh, the broker on that. Uh, probably, yeah, certainly left some money on the table, but it, again, here we go, right? So I, I was ready to move along. Well, and, and you said the buyer felt right, which I think yeah. that, you know it's it's an intangible you know thing for a very you know specific technical situation. But I mean, I think there's a there's a lot to be said about the trust and you know lining that up with what you wanted. And how did you go about telling your employees? Uh, so they had, they had known ahead of time. We're a small group of people. They knew I was looking to sell the business. Um, I think they're fairly relieved, nervous because unknown, you know, who's, who's the new boss going to be. But at the same time, they knew that I wasn't probably suited to be the boss for for forever. Right. And so to be their lead. And so I only had a handful of, uh, of employees. And so it was good. We were a tight group of people. And the, and that was another part of the discussion and this, the eventual purchaser that was very important to them, you know, uh, as it should be for any purchaser. Right. So the, the team was real important and they, uh, I think, I think everyone, maybe one or two of the employees that I had are no longer with them, but I think the, the majority of them are still with that company. And this is, I think, five years now. So now that you're looking back and you're seeing this, I mean, it, is there anything you would have changed about how you went about it? Was there, you know, do you feel like it went the way you wanted it to? Or is there anything that you would have changed? Uh, the only thing I would have changed, I, I like I said, was... I, I should have put more time into preparing the business for sale uh, instead of getting to the point of I want to sell. Uh, so that was really a critical piece, probably staying in the business a little bit longer than I should have several years longer than I should have. But that's more of a personal thing than anything, but just not seeing the year over year growth. And, and so I should have waved the white flag a few years earlier and then started making plans to sell. And so the biggest change I would make you know, on, on the next business would be really prepping it for sale and taking that time to make sure that it's really shiny and, and fresh and looking good for, for a buyer. And then understanding the valuation and getting aligning myself with a, with a broker that really knows how to sell value, really understands the business or as well as you can and has a track record of selling things, you know, over and above real baseline, you know, formulas for valuation. Mm -hmm. Is there, you know, speaking of life after, now that you said with the next business, what, what are the, what has uh, life been like for you for the last five years? I mean, what do you got going on? I know it's, I know you got some really cool, interesting things that you're, that you're trying to tackle. And why don't you kind of give our listeners a little bit of a glimpse into that? Yeah. So uh, after selling two businesses, not particularly well, um, now I thought I was an entrepreneur. And so I thought I could just (laughs) start up a start up a business here or there. And, and I had a little cash in my pocket. And so, um, so I started a business in the transportation industry, building some equipment, that specialized equipment and did that for a couple of years and realized that that's even a much bigger industry than I've ever been in. Um, and then started another business sort of back to my equipment days and my repair days. I started a business that buys and sells used equipment, uh, surplus automation equipment, manufacturing equipment, which I still have that business today. So we're mainly just buying and selling surplus equipment and, and inventory. Uh, so that's a, the main thing I've been doing for the, about the last three years. Uh, and then most recently, simultaneously um, launching a business in the uh, freelancer, uh, independent, flexible work marketplace. So there's a lot of these platforms, you know, most people are familiar with Uber and, and TaskRabbit and Upwork and Handy. And there's a whole bunch of these uh, platforms that match up freelance workers with uh, customers and so we've, we've launched a platform that really there's a couple things different one is for all types of services so it could be anything from things around your home to your business to consulting to websites so instead of going to a bunch of different platforms for you know maybe uber to get a ride somewhere and angie's list to have somebody come and work on your house or you know uh, one of these other ones to assemble furniture our thought is to have a universal services marketplace, and then we have a very different revenue model. Uh, so instead of a huge percentage of the workers' wages, we have a membership model. And so we just launched that platform about a month ago and uh, starting to see some traction and pretty excited about that. That's a much bigger 100x times anything I ever thought I would be involved with as far as size of market. But got a, a business really a seasoned business partner uh, it cio ceo level person that's my business partner that's that's uh 
you know, very, very skilled in the technology side of it. So I'm staying in the biz dev uh, integrator side of this and he's on the technology side. So really excited to see where that one's going to go, Ryan. So the, the, the biz dev guy that wasn't an entrepreneur is now a serial entrepreneur many times over. <laughs> well, yeah. So this is the eighth or ninth, ninth <laughs> one. And so, you know, we'll see most of them have been smaller niche businesses. And like I said, this, this last one here that I'm working on is a, it's a huge, it's a huge opportunity and I'm excited to be involved with it. And how are you treating that differently based on the crazy amounts of experience and wisdom that you've uh, grown over the last, you know, couple of decades? Well, I agree with the crazy part. Uh, I don't know about the wisdom part, but um, as far as the crazy part, so we're we're looking at this. This business is way too big for two or three uh, people. So certainly, we're putting together a really neat team of of uh, individuals that can can do the work. So this one's going to be a, a huge scalable thing. So first off, we're going for um, investor financing on this one, Ryan. Whereas all my other businesses have been self funded type businesses. And this one is just, you know, the opportunity is way too huge um, to try to do that. And we want to share it. So we want to share this business with the workers, uh, the flexible workers and the customers or any, actually anybody that wants to get involved and in, in be in this, because this is, this is kind of how work is trending. So this flexible work movement is really uh, resonating well, uh, particularly with some of the you know folks in your generation uh, that want freedom and flexibility in their work life and not do the you know, do the 10, 20, 30 years at one company or, or things like that, that my generation did. And so, so that's really who we're appealing to and looking to say, Hey, come alongside us, help us build this thing. And it's for you guys, you know, we want to, we want to build it. We have the experience to, to build this thing, but we really want to build it with and for you. And so we don't want, you know, we don't want to just throw it out there and tell you to sign up. We want to say, Hey, we really value your input and, and let's, let's go build this thing together. Nice. It sounds like you're having fun and I think there's a huge need for it. So maybe we'll get another huge boom like you had with the, the dot com and the, the storage. Yeah. yeah, we'll see. So, is, is, you know, when we look, you know, you, I, I appreciate so much all the different uh, parts of the stories that you've brought to the table. Larry, is there, is there one thing that you want to kind of leave the listeners with that we've talked about or maybe one that we haven't that you want to just leave uh, everybody with? So I would say just from my personal experience, a couple of things, one in, in business it's just really important, uh, especially small businesses, align yourself with some partners because the, the the growth and the ideas and all of the things that you've done, you know, certainly stay in your strength, right? So I'm a biz dev guy. And so stay in your strength, do what you do well. And then this is real common one-on-one stuff, but, I, but I've lived it and tried it and stepped over into the other places that I really learned a lot, but probably didn't benefit greatly from. And if you're, if you're building a business or want to build a business is, is take the time before you get to exit and you know I, I see it and i hear it over and over and over again and and so few of us really take it to heart is make sure when you decide you're going to exit make sure you take the time before that to really go through work with somebody trusted somebody that that knows what they're doing to really help you prepare that business to sale to exit out of that business because it just would make the process so much better I love it. And if there's one way that our listeners can reach out to you, you know, sign up for a gig, because I know that's, yeah. uh, you know, what, 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 yeah. what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah. So, so my personal, uh, my email for the company that I'm working with is gigs, which, which is G-I-H-G-S dot com. So it's a little unusual in the spelling and there's a, a meaning, you can find that on our about page. So my email is Larry.Anderson at gigs.com, G-I-H-G-S dot com. And uh, can also find me on LinkedIn, uh, Larry Anderson in Minnesota. Um, and, you know, my cell phone number is typically on my website stuff. And so uh, I'm, I'm available. I'm out there. Uh, be glad to connect with anybody, chat with anybody. Certainly like to swap stories about business. Love it, Larry. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay, Ryan. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for sticking in there for listening to the entire episode with Larry. I learned a ton from him and I think there's some huge takeaways that we could all have as entrepreneurs. The first one is do the hard work that is necessary with the largest client of yours to make sure that you protect yourself, the terms, the conditions, and everything that you've built from them making a decision of shifting gears because it's worth it for your sanity and also worth it to make sure that your business is valuable and transferable even if you have a large concentration 
information into one customer. The second thing is that making sure that you prep and do all the hard work necessary to build a valuable business before you're running out of energy or before the industry changes. So that way you can pull the trigger on an exit whenever you want to the person that you want. And doing that prep before you run out of energy will give you the rate of return on the business that you deserve. And the third takeaway is you know your business and you know your industry a lot better than most people, if anybody else. So whether it's a business broker, an attorney, an investment banker, or anybody that you get involved on your team, make sure that you trust yourself and you understand the value to a financial buyer versus a strategic buyer because you are still the boss until that whole situation closes. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to go on to iTunes and give us a rating. Otherwise, I will see you next week.